Today's scripture is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborns of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, let me uh, welcome you to Exilic on this rainy uh, Sunday morning, especially if you're new to New York and you're new to our church. We're so glad that you can join us today. Uh, my name is Aaron. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors uh, at Exilic. And over the past summer, uh, we've had different guest speakers and our staff uh, speak on different topics uh, throughout the Bible. But in April, uh, a few months ago, right after Easter, uh, we actually started a teaching series on the book of Genesis for two reasons. Uh, number one, if Easter is about new life, the book of Genesis is about how life began. So that was one reason why we started a series on Genesis. The second reason why we wanted to take a look at Genesis is actually because of the atheist and nihilistic philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, my personal favorite philosopher. And Nietzsche believed that if our origin comes from nothing and our outcome is to nothing, then all we are is sandwiched between two nothings contemplating about nothingness. And Nietzsche's right. If our origin comes from nothing, our outcome is to nothing, then ultimately life is meaningless. 
And at the same time, though, what that also means then is that if our origin does come from something or someone, and our destiny or outcome is to something or someone, then that then what that means is that what we're sandwiched between is actually pretty meaningful uh, and highly significant. And so unlike secularism, which says that we're here by accident, that's our origin story, and therefore life has no ultimate meaning, it can have lower meaning, like being you know, uh, a teacher or, uh, or you know, being you know, a lawyer or being a soccer dad or soccer mom that can have lower sense of meaning, but there's no ultimate sense of meaning to life. But if our origin is actually with, with intentionality and purpose, that we're here for a reason, not just by accident, then what that means is that life is highly meaningful and highly significant. And the reason why God made us in Genesis 1 and 2, what we saw is that he made us to reflect his image. And so the purpose of life then is to blossom and to grow into that image more and more. Just like I want my kids, I want my girls to blossom and grow, uh, to grow into mature adults in the way that they think and the, the way that they act. We too, we are called to grow and to blossom into the image of God more and more. Or to put it another way, we, we are called to spiritually mature more and more. Now, what does it look like to spiritually mature? Is it to know a lot of theology and to know the scriptures well? Yes, that's a part of it. Is it to have high moral character and integrity? Yes, that's a part of it. Is to is it to act in a virtuous way, to care for the poor and justice and those that are marginalized? Yes, that's a part of it. But one other key part of spiritually maturing and blossoming into the image of God more and more is with our emotions as well. Okay, let me read something for us from Pete Scazzaro. And in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Scazzaro writes this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, your relationship with God, and the people around you. So let me ask you a question today on this rainy Sunday. How emotionally mature are you? Now that's a trick question, right? Because if you say, I'm a 10 out of 10, that's narcissistic, and you're not exactly emotionally mature, because part of what it means to be emotionally mature is having some semblance of self-awareness. But here's what we do know, that there is a distinction between your IQ and your EQ. Okay, I think all of us know people that are very intelligent, but they might not be emotionally intelligent. And similarly, I would say that there is a possibility where you can have high theological IQ, but have low emotional IQ. Spiritual maturity, though, is impossible without emotional maturity as well. And so what does emotional intelligence then, and emotional maturity, 
have anything to do with the Bible? And what does it have to do with the story of Cain and Abel that we just read today? All right. If you're unfamiliar with the uh, story of Cain and Abel, it's about two brothers, okay? And the book of Genesis is all about beginnings, right? So we have the, uh, the first human beings, we have the first dysfunctional family, the first birth, the first sibling rivalries, we have the first murder, we have the first religious persecution, and we have the first death. So it's all about beginnings, right? And so here we have uh, the beginnings of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain was the older brother, Abel was the younger brother, Cain was a farmer, Abel was a herdsman. And what we have here in verses 3 to 5 is this. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And so here what we have is also another first. We have the first worship service that is mentioned in the Bible. And we know that this is the first worship service that is mentioned in the Bible because Cain and Abel bring an offering or a sacrifice to God. And what we see here is that they bring two different things. So Cain brings uh, some fruit. Abel brings some, uh, some of the firstborn. And what's very interesting here is that there's a description that is given of the kind of uh, offering that Cain brought. Um, it's just some fruits. So nothing significant or special about it. But the author chooses to describe uh, Abel's offering in a special way. It's the fat portions, which are the tastiest, and it's some of the firstborn. And the firstborn is always symbolic of like the most important. Okay. So the author intentionally chooses to describe in a special way uh, the kind of offering uh, that Abel brings. And what we read here is that God did not look with favor on Cain's offering, but he did look with favor on Abel's offering. And here, the question is why? And theologians go back and forth as to why uh, God accepted Abel's but not Cain's. Maybe it's because Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, but Cain didn't bring the first fruits of the harvest. Maybe it's because Cain uh, brought just fruit when he was supposed to bring an animal like Abel did. Maybe it's because Abel came to worship God with his whole heart, while Cain only came with half of his heart. And so theologians go back and forth as to why God accepted one but not the other. And here, I think, I think all three views are, can be harmonious. All three views can be, um, can be compatible. But here's what we do know. God accepted Abel's offering, uh, but he did not accept Cain's offering. And because of that, Cain is very angry and his face is downcast. It literally means his face became long and his face became crestfallen. And what I want us to see here is that anger and being downcast or sorrowful, those two things are valid, legitimate, godly emotions. But at the same time, if these valid, legitimate emotions are not displayed in the appropriate context, 
then these valid emotions all of a sudden become invalid emotions. Okay? So Diane Alber is an artist, author, kids educator, and Alber wanted to teach her kids about emotions because kids sometimes, they don't, they don't know what they're feeling and why they're feeling this way. And so she made this chart um, that's right up on the screen. And the way that, so these are a lot of emotions, right? And so what she would tell her kids is like, um, she would say, kids, how do you feel today? And so they would go up to the chart and they would have to find the, uh, the picture, the emoji that uh, helped them uh, process how they felt. And I remember seeing this for the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, I don't think it's just kids that need this chart. I think adults need this chart too, because oftentimes we don't really know how we feel or why we feel a particular way. And the reason why we oftentimes don't know how we feel emotionally is because it's very rare that we feel one emotion at a time. More often than not, we feel a lot of mixed emotions, like maybe four or five emotions at the same time. We feel anxious sometimes, and then we feel afraid. We feel panicky sometimes. We feel stressed at other times. We feel frustrated. We feel insecure. We worry. And we feel all of these different emotions at the same time. But here's what you have to know. As you think about this chart and all the different emotions that are here, what I want you to know that emotions, emotions are a gift that God has given to us. As one author put it, emotions are the language of the soul. Uh, just as your words are an overflow of what is in your heart, your emotions too are an overflow of what is in your heart. Okay, so emotions are a gift. Uh, that God has given to us. It is an indispensable part of what it means to be human. But here is the key. Oftentimes, our emotions travel faster than our rational thoughts. And this is when our emotions become irrational, given the context or situation that we might be in. It might not be appropriate given the context. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was in seminary, my roommate, who I'll keep anonymous, uh, I told him I was sharing this story today, uh, we were in a uh, homiletics preaching class, so we, we used to take like public speaking classes, preaching classes. And for this particular class, um, our professor, professor actually assigned us a sermon to give. And my buddy had to do a funeral sermon of all sermons. And what was hilarious about this is that my friend is the smiliest person you will ever meet in your life. And so keep in mind, this is like 15 years ago. And so what we would do is, um, in the back of the room, we would have like a VHS recorder, if you remember that. So we would have a VHS recorder recording us as we spoke, and all the classmates, we would like get feedback. And so here's my friend, someone just died, and he's giving a funeral sermon, and he's smiling the entire time. And so one of the feedbacks that we had to give, it, give to him was, Look at the video. Like, you don't, know, you don't know that you're doing this, but you're smiling the entire time during the course of a funeral sermon. Now, smiling and being happy and being joyful are valid emotions. But is that a valid emotion given the context of the situation? Probably not. And the question that I want us to think about as we think about this context and as you think about your life, anger 
is a valid emotion. In fact, Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. And so in other words, anger is permissible uh, so long as it is a righteous anger. But given this context, is Cain's anger and his crestfallenness valid given the context of the situation? Well, look with me at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And so here God is questioning the validity of the emotions that Cain is expressing. And I think this is important for two reasons. Okay? Our culture tends to do two things when it comes to our emotions. Our culture either makes our emotions everything or our culture tends to make our emotions nothing. So let me, let's parse this out. Our culture tends to make our emotions everything. Tim Keller, in an article called The Revolutionary Christian Heart, Keller writes this. For the Greeks and Romans, the great human struggle was between the mind. For modern people, the great struggle is almost the reverse. We believe our deepest feelings are who we really are and we must not repress or deny them. The great human struggle is between the emotions and a repressive society that so often stands in the way of self-expression and realization. And so this is why we say things like, you are what you feel, or follow your heart, or the heart wants what the heart wants, or how can something be wrong when it feels so right? And so here, what happens then is that our feelings, in many ways, now become our God. We submit to our feelings, we surrender to our feelings, and we obey our feelings because our feelings are gospel to us. They are our true north. And so in many ways, our feelings then become our God. Listen to what Rihanna says in a Vogue interview. I always believe that when you follow your heart or your gut, when you really follow the things that feel great to you, you can never lose. And so again, our feelings then become our God, and our feelings are gospel truth. We can't deny or repress them, so we surrender and obey to whatever we might feel. But take a look at what Scripture says. The prophet Jeremiah 7, in Jeremiah 17 writes this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it? Proverbs 28 says this, one who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but one who walks wisely will flee to safety. And so what scripture would say is that our emotions are valid, but it doesn't mean that our emotions are always reliable and that we follow our emotions wherever they might take us. So think about this morning, especially moms and dads. As you're getting ready to come to church, kids not listening to you, not that it happened to my family, and you're yelling at your kids, kids, get ready for church, brush your teeth, and you start yelling at them emotionally to worship God. Is that the right emotion given the context? Or maybe you're unemployed right now. You have severance, but the severance package is running out, and you're freaking out, and you're panicking, you're worrying, you're insecure, you're afraid, despite the fact that Philippians says, do not be anxious about anything, even when you're unemployed, right?
Or maybe, maybe you have beef with your roommate or your spouse and you feel like you're doing all the work. And so you start doing the one thing that you should never do, scorekeeping, record keeping. And then you give them a look, impatient look, annoyance. And then all of a sudden what starts bubbling up is bitterness and resentment toward the other person. As you think about your emotions lately, if you were to look at that chart, what emotions have you been feeling lately? Secondly, how emotionally intelligent and mature have you been with your emotions lately? You cannot be spiritually mature unless you are emotionally mature. Spiritual maturity and emotional immaturity do not go hand in hand. So one camp says that our emotions are everything. The other camp says that our emotions are nothing, that our emotions are dangerous, and, and that, that we are to be, uh, suppress our emotions in many ways, which is why we say things like, stop overreacting, calm down, or don't be so emotional. Or we say things to ourselves, right? When someone says, how are you doing? Like, that was like crazy traumatic, right? And you say things like, oh, no, that wasn't, that's it's not a big deal. Despite the fact that you clearly look bothered and frustrated by what took place. Some of us grew up in families where emotions were downplayed. Like, if you're a boy, no crying allowed. If you're a girl, you're not allowed to be angry. No I love yous, no hugs, and we grew up in sort of those kinds of environments. Some of us grew up in churches where theologically it was seen, if you're passionate in your worship, that is less spiritually mature than being frozen, chosen, and stoic. And just to set the record clear, we do not believe in that. But some of us grew up in church environments where we grew up like that. Or maybe you're the kind of person that is emotionally detached from other people, and therefore you, are, you don't have the ability to empathize. I think there is water leaking right here. We can get some, some help. Um, but some of us uh, are the kind of people that, thank you. Uh, some of us are the kind of people that are emotionally detached, right? And so we find it hard to emotionally empathize with other people. And what we see in scripture is that our emotions are not everything. Look at me, look at me. Our emotions are, our emotions are not everything. They're not our God, but our emotions are not nothing either. And so what we see in Scripture is God displaying anthropomorphic emotions. God is sorrowful, God is grieved, God rejoices. Jesus Christ was fully human, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, right? Jesus is uh, well acquainted with sorrow and grief. Um, we see Jesus actually flipping over tables, even in anger. And so we see Jesus displaying the full range of human emotions with his uh, patience and kindness as well. And when you take a look at the book of Psalms, we see full range of human emotions again, like lament, sorrow, rejoicing, depression, confusion. So our emotions are not everything, but our emotions are not nothing. Rather, our emotions are an indispensable part of what it means to be human. However, if we do not keep our emotions in check, our emotions can not only cause harm to ourselves, but harm to other people as well. And this is what we see in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Notice here that this murder did not happen out of the blue. This murder happened with the emotional seeds of anger, sorrow, self-pity, jealousy. This anger, uh, these emotional seeds are what germinated and what helped blossom what eventually became a deceptive trap, a lie, and murder. Cain's outward actions flowed from his emotional internal state. And this is what we have to be careful about too, letting our unhealthy emotions become unhealthy actions. This is also why some of the nicest people that I know struggle with road rage. <laughs> They're driving and someone cuts them off and then maybe someone else cuts them off again and all of a sudden this anger bubbles up to them like speeding and you know tailgating someone. We have to be careful of letting our unhealthy emotions lead to unhealthy actions. And I don't, I know that this is going to sound super Gen Xer and cheesy, but I know that this is going to stick if I say it. But the philosopher Ice Cube, when he said, check yourself before you wreck yourself, is something that we really have to do every day. You have to check your emotions. If you do not check them, they will wreck your life. They will wreck other people's lives as well. And so one of the ways that we can do that from Alistair Groves and Winston Smith in their book, How to Engage Our Emotions, they talk about four things. Uh, and Groves and Smith, right? First, we have to identify what we're feeling emotionally, like on that chart. And then we have to examine uh, um, uh, those emotions. Okay, why are we feeling this way? And then we have to evaluate the emotions. Is this an appropriate emotion given the context or not? Or is this inappropriate? And then last but not least, we act out those emotions. And by doing those four things, we don't let our emotions guide us. What we're instead doing is that we are guiding our emotions. And it's hard because our emotions do travel faster than our rational thinking. But this is something that we have to practice over and over again because if we don't, verse seven writes this, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right or act the right, the right way, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So sin desire, like a crouching lion, desires to have Cain, but you know what? It not only desires to have Cain, it desires to have you. And you know how sin as a predator preys on you? It preys on you by making your emotions all out of whack. Where instead of you guiding your emotions, your emotions are now um, whipping you around all over the place. And that when that happens, uh, we are overcome and ruled by our emotions. And so one of the things that we have to do is that if our emotions are the language of the heart, we have to make sure that our hearts are in the right place and healthy. And so there's a visual that I want to give. Hopefully that can be helpful. But I want you to imagine for a moment that your hearts are like a tree. Now, obviously, a tree can be very unhealthy and a tree can be very healthy. But to quote Jesus, we do know that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. And so think of your heart like the tree. And then what I want to see in the next slide 
are the kinds of fruit that come out of an unhealthy heart or an unhealthy tree, whether it's anxiety, worry, fear, rage, discontentment, being overwhelmed, jealousy, bitterness, grumpiness, whereas good fruit, as Galatians 5 would say, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And again, let me ask you, as you think about how you are feeling lately, emotionally, what kind of fruit are you bearing lately? Or let me put it another way, when life comes at you and your heart is shaken because of life circumstances or your tree is shaken when life comes at you, what kind of fruit drops to the ground? Is it the one on the left or is it more the one on the right? And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, right, more often than not, uh, we are a mixed bag of fruit. And so there are a lot of occasions where we do exhibit the emotions that are on the left side, unhealthy emotions. And it turns out that we're not that different from Cain then. Uh, to quote Jesus himself, if you, have, uh, if you even hate someone or you strongly dislike them, you have already murdered them in your heart. And so in many ways, we are not that different from Cain himself. Um, and so in many ways, our, if our emotions are not in a healthy place, uh, then our hearts, and our hearts are not in a healthy place. Uh, the fruit that's going to be born are uh, exhibited here. And so the question that I want to, um, I want us to think about is this then. What do our, what does Christianity then have to offer us emotionally? Okay. Um, I don't know if you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs before, but I am an ENFJ. I don't know if any of you are ENFJs, but uh, I am borderline in the middle on almost every one of them except one. I'm like on the border of E and I. I'm on the border of N and S, I think it is. I'm on the border of T and J, but there is one where I lean heavily towards and it's F. And despite the fact that our mission says like inspiring thinkers to believe, I'm not a thinker. <laughs> I'm, a f I'm far more of a feeler than a thinker. And so, especially for those of us who are in the F category, and I would say us in general because we're all emotional creatures, what does Christianity have to offer us emotionally? And here I would say that for us in particular, especially the Fs, Christianity has to make emotional sense to us and not just intellectual sense. Of course, it has to be rationally coherent, of course. But Christianity has to be, it has to make emotional sense to us as well. So like if I struggle with like a lot of anxiety and worry or anger and bitterness, like what does Christianity have to offer me? Can it give me a peace that transcends all understanding? Can it, be, can it give me joy? Can it help me grieve properly and give me space to lament? Can it offer me all of these things? And I would say absolutely. Christianity does, or I would say God does have the resources to help us process these emotions in the right way with one condition. There is one emotion you must feel first before you feel any of the other emotions because there is one emotion that trumps all emotions. You know what that is? It's love. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love trumps every other emotion. In fact, it says you can have faith and move mountains, and you, know, you might know all this theology, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. 
That is how important love is. In fact, love is so important, it encompasses or umbrellas all of the other emotions because love is patient. It is kind. It, is, it doesn't envy. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't boast. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love trumps over all the different emotions. And what we see here is even in the midst of Cain displaying these emotions that are all out of control, God shows him love. And you know why? Because the worst thing that you can do for someone that is angry is to tell them to relax. You know what that does? That makes them more angry. If someone is emotionally out of control, telling them to calm down, it's like the worst thing that you can say to them. The best thing that you can do is to melt their hearts, whether they're kids or adults, to show them like an unconditional love and to like wave upon wave where they're drowning in love. That's the best thing that you can do to melt someone's heart. And we hear, we actually see God do that for Cain. In verse 13 to 15, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth or an exile and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And what's interesting here is the same God that is concerned for Abel is also concerned for Cain. That even though Cain is banished even further east from Eden, even though he is banished, he is not banished from God's concern, compassion, and care for even Cain. And we know this because he puts a mark on Cain. And we don't know what this mark is, whether it's a tattoo or some kind of branding or what, but what we do know that is that this, this mark, it is a mark of grace. It is a mark of mercy. And Cain did not deserve this, but God shows him this love despite the fact that he didn't deserve it instead of the justice he deserved. There was once a... Um, a guy who was at a carnival. You know, carnivals, they have like cartoonists and like artists and stuff like that that do self-portraits. And so the, the, art, the, the guy goes up to the artist and he's like, how much is one of these like, you know, self-portraits? And so the cartoonist was like, $30. And the guy was like, what? $30 for like this picture you can do in five minutes? He was like, this picture better do me justice. And the cartoonist looks at the guy's face and he goes, sir, it is... Not justice that you need, but mercy. <laughs> and you know what? It is not justice that we need. Especially because our emotions are all over the place. It is not justice that we need, but it is mercy. And just as God shows Cain mercy, he shows us mercy. Because guess what? Behind this story is another story of love and redemption that is taking place, okay? In Genesis 3, Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve, are promised that a seed, one of their kids, would come to rescue them from sin and death. And so you can imagine Eve being pregnant for the first time, thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the chosen one that's going to save us, only to realize that Cain who she thought would potentially be the Messiah and Savior now becomes a murderer, 
And not only that, he murders his baby brother, Abel. Now she has no kids. And what's interesting is that when you study the pages of Scripture, you see the murder and infanticide of baby boys over and over again. When Moses, the liberator and savior for his people, was born, Pharaoh issued this edict that all baby boys would be murdered. When Jesus, the greater Moses, our liberator, our savior, was born, King Herod issued this edict that all the baby boys would be murdered. And the reason for baby boys being murdered again and again throughout scriptures is because the serpent or Satan knows that a seed from Eve would come to rescue all of humanity. And Satan is going to do anything that he can to stop the purposes of God, but those purposes cannot be stopped. Because the story of redemption is a story of love. And what we read here in Luke 3, 23 to 38 is this. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought, because of this virgin birth, of Joseph. And then it goes on to say, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And in verse 38, it says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, who was their third kid, the son of Adam, the son of God. Satan thought that the seed, the Messiah, would come from the line of Abel, but it turns out that the seed, the Messiah, actually comes from the line of Seth. And much like Abel, Jesus would also die by murder. But whereas Abel's blood cries out for vengeance and justice, Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and mercy. Not because justice is important, rather because justice is important, but it has been satisfied by his son by dying on a cross, which is why in Hebrews 12 we read this. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus died to give us mercy because our emotions are all over the place. We have not only hurt ourselves emotionally, but for sure we have hurt other people emotionally as well because our emotions are all distorted, oftentimes unjustified, and all over the place. He died not only to forgive us of those unhealthy emotions, but to also transform our emotions by giving us his greatest sacrifice. Not some fruit, not a lamb, but his firstborn son to die in our place. And when you realize that Jesus, that God the Father loved you so much that he would give his firstborn son for you, out of love for you, to give you a mark of grace. When you realize how much he loves you, as cliche as that sounds, it does melt your heart and it does transform you. And you realize that God loves you so much that he is the kind of God that you can go to, even when your emotions are all over the place, because guess what? It's okay not to be okay. One of the benefits of counseling and therapy is that there's another person that can help process your emotions. But I also want you to know that God and the Holy Spirit are referred to as our wonderful counselor. And that by going to him in prayer too, and not just your therapist, that by going to him as well, he can help process your emotions, which is why in Philippians 4, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, 
present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. And so he's preaching and praying his emotions to God. And that is what I want us to do as well. Because if our emotions are the language of our hearts, you know what God's language is? The way that he speaks to us is through prayer and through his word. And the more we, t- we spend time in prayer and, through, and, and in the word, it actually helps us process uh, the various emotions that we are feeling. But you have to check yourself. And as you grow more and more emotionally, what you will also see is that you are growing more spiritually as well. To become like Jesus, who never once emotionally sinned, but displayed all the human emotions at the right context, at the right time and right place. And that is what I so want for every one of you as well. Not to be emotionally immature or erratic, but to be emotionally mature more and more like our Savior. Let's pray. Uh, Father, our emotions are sometimes like a wild fire uh, that is uncontainable. Uh, But as we think about our emotions, help us to see that our emotions are very important. They're an indispensable part of who we are. But instead of letting our emotions whip us around all over the place, it is my prayer that we can help lead and guide our emotions. Give us the maturity to continually check ourselves. Give us the, the, the intelligence emotional intelligence to filter everything through the lens of your word. Give us the power to seek you in prayer and to be silent. Help my brothers and sisters, help me uh, to reflect more and more of your son who displayed all the different emotions, but in the right ways. In your name I pray, amen.